So when one of the books, Carte Blanc, is written by Jeffrey Beaver, and it was written in like the mid 2000s, like we're talking peak 5.11 era, right? And you are yeah. one chapter into this book and James Bond is in Afghanistan. He is wearing 5.11 tactical and OD green head to toe. He has a black leather pancake holster on his, you know, at the three o'clock position with a 40 caliber Walther PPS M1 in the holster. And he's got Oakley sunglasses. Oh my God. So he looks and like he, he just walked out of like, yeah, 5.11 catalog. Like yeah, the, yeah. Like, like, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I remember reading that for the first time and I was like 15 and I was like, what in the hell? Uh, it really just throws you out of it. Yeah. And he's like, I'm, I'm in concealment. I'm like, dude, you're in the Middle East and you're, you're wearing, I am an operator. You're listening to the Art and More podcast with your hosts, Nathan and BR. Nathan is a Canadian illustrator with a couple years of military experience. And BR is a British anarchist that moved to the States. Both are passionate shooters and community builders. Together, they run the Seaburn Art Page. Enjoy the show. You know, the really autistic part of my brain just really wants to buy a PPK and get it milled for the most ridiculous shit. Like, I want to put an X300 on it. I want to put, like, the biggest, strongest light that I can and, like, an Aimpoint Acro, like a mailbox. Yeah, you know, by definition, that was literally Walther's April Fool's Day post, like, four years ago did they actually because that's, that's bad. <laughs> oh yeah they, they, they released they released like a, a drawing of a, of a ppk with a milled for a dot with a giant compensator on it um a light slapped underneath uh it's it was pretty good like and if it, i it comes could up waste like dr no or something with that i think my life would be complete yeah i really feel like you're you're doing it the the right way it's almost like that really weird kingsman gun you know <laughs> Oh yeah, he had like with a with a four ten shotgun shell shoved underneath. Like I think it's technically a twelve gauge with in the movie. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of those movies, special. anyways? As a, as as a diehard Bond fan and uh, basically James Bond incarnate, what did you think of the Kingsman movies? <laughs> I loved it. It's like a. I, I told my friends when it came out because they were having a hard time seeing how I would like it, and I'm like, well, it's like Deadpool met Roger Moore's James Bond and had a love child. So it's like perfect, you know, especially in the middle of the Daniel Craig area where it's, it's very dark and aggressive having that like chaotic laughter. It, it was a really good time. Yes. I, I really liked the first one. Um, mm-hmm. the second it's one kind of been like a downhill kind of slope and the, and the prequel was super weird. I didn't even know they made a prequel. Don't watch it. It's, it's very, very weird. It has, uh, <laughs> has Rasputin uh, doing like some oral do stuff on some dude's thigh. For like a solid two minutes on like some really weird POV like camera shots, and this was like a, a movie I saw in the theaters with my friends and my wife, and they all just kind of looked down the row at me <laughs> asking what I brought them to. <laughs> oh man, yeah, no, it's it's like I think that's the same with everything Mark Millar every write ever writes. Mm-hmm. Like the studios will get their hands on it and they'll just bastardize it. Yeah, yeah, I love 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 the first movie. Yeah, I mean, how can you I. I like the, uh, you know, the edgy teenager in me grew up reading that guy's comic books and the, uh, the yeah. original comic and all of that. But anyways, um, not to piss BR off and not introduce <laughs> you. We have today Caleb, Commando Bond, and also happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Uh, we totally fucked the dog having an episode last week. I'm sorry. All of us were doing Thanksgiving things and now we're here. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's I'm glad we got able to track each other down to do this, man. It's been a long yes, time coming. We've talked about it we've, we've back and forth for, for a while. Yeah, three days in a row. And also, like, while you're working on your book. Um, yeah, no worries there. 
am I correct in that that book was being published through the same guys who did like the picture books for Larry Vickers? Like the uh... yeah, it's the exact same team. It's the Headstamp Publishing. So uh, if you're familiar with that that photography, that insanely awesome photography that's in the Vickers guides, um, that's James Rupley, and yep. he's amazing. He's one of the two guys who is kind of part of the day to day business operations of Headstamp. It's him and Ian McCollum of Forgotten Weapons. Oh shit. So. Yeah, they're two awesome dudes. Um, love, love, love working with them on this project. I uh, I got out of the industry full-time last October, and I'd been wanting to write this book for years, and I went to find out who the heck had been doing the Vickers Guides because I told my then-fiancé, like, I want to do, and I showed her a Vickers Guide, this, but with all the things of James Bond. And, that was, and then I worked in the industry and was pulling crazy hours for a couple of years and just didn't have the time. Um, so I went to look him up and James happened to already be following me on Instagram. Um, I followed him back really quick, you know, and I'm like, Hey, can we talk? I have an idea. We cold pitched like last December and I was signing a publishing agreement a month later. And here we are, like, we're, we're, we're pushing ahead. We've captured some incredible firearms. Um, and I'm almost done with the manuscript. It's about to go to them for some, the first heavy rounds of editing to hopefully be out for pre-sale this spring. That's awesome. Uh, hopefully some of my art made it into there uh, and the, uh, the graphic design. So uh, I guess. Yeah. Chill yeah. That was really, that was really clutch for you to kind of get some of that cool stuff together, especially the, uh, the skyfall target. That was one of my favorite things in the oh, world. That, so you. that's gonna, I, I, I don't the see any spot where that can't go. Any sense. Oh, none at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I, I paraded around some British military dudes like we don't know, man. Yeah, well, like what 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 the fuck is this? I am going to also rag on like the guns in Skyfall were really bad. I'm yeah. so sorry, Caleb. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, if if you really want me to get down the rabbit hole, um, the thing that drives me more mad this is like there's there's two two major instances of firearms in the Bond movies that like throw my eye twitching really hard. Yeah. Uh, Skyfall is one of the two, and specifically because of a script issue yeah they introduce the the gun the walther as a ppks it is not a ppks it is a walther ppk in 765 millimeter that has a specialized fake signature grip wrapped around it all the photos of the prop show a standard ppk mag um that fits flush to it so okay that, i get that people part telling me notice. all you, the uh, yeah your gun autism beat me there yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that drives me mad because you know i post ppks and everyone's like well you need a ppks because bond carried one i'm like no he didn't he he just didn't like you're really yeah. taking the british people who wrote the script at face value on the yeah. technical side like you know kudos to armors and all the hard work that they do but in that same movie he also wears leather gloves and activates a biometric scanner grip gun and functions they actually had to edit the gloves off of daniel craig's hands because he thought they'd look really cool in the scene and then they yeah. went back to edit. They're like, "Oh shit!" So they had to CGI his bare skin to make it make sense. His hands looked really oh oh because he had a biometric gun. Yeah, he had the biometric gun, and they're like, "You need to put." He's like, he wore the gloves on the set that day. He's like, "It's gonna look so badass to have the gun and the gloves. It's all gonna look right." And they get in the post, and they're like, "Oh shit!" Like he shit. can't shoot his gun with the gloves on. Yeah, you. Know, I didn't actually know that. That's actually a badass little piece of trivia um yeah, it gets nerdier than that too <laughs> yeah well what's the other one because i i want to complain about my my eye twitching yeah the other one is um license to kill 
love the movie. It gets a lot of hate. Timothy Dalton gets a lot of hate. But the the biggest issue I have with that movie is in the beginning of the film, he goes off in a helicopter while in morning dress with the DEA and they, they start hunting down you know, the villain and all that to kind of start the film off. And he gets handed a gun by the DEA and it looks like a Beretta M9. But it's a Taurus. They handed him a Taurus <laughs> PT-92. And then the armorer had the audacity and special features to go off and celebrate how awesome it was. He's like, I intentionally put a Taurus in his hand. Why? I, 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 he didn't really specify. I, you know, frame-mounted safeties, I guess. I don't know. All I know is the Taurus PT-92 is a James Bond gun because of that. And then to add insult to injury, when you get to Casino Royale, you know, that really badass title sequence where it's all illustrated like the playing cards and stuff yeah i, I like you look that. At, yeah no it's great until you see all the guns that are illustrated and one of them is the taurus pt-92 instead of a beretta m9 <laughs> <laughs> it's like just spitting in your eye if you if you're looking for it yeah it's it's like uh ne- next spawn comes around she's going to be like i don't know a hispanic woman with a high point yeah it's just like let's let's try to just hurt my feelings as many times as humanly possible yeah that that is really funny but yes you can't really hold the british to account for like that kind of thing i i'm i uh didn't actually notice any of that i i don't think that <laughs> like my, my brain isn't quite as as honed in on the uh the technical specifications between different kinds of ppk but i do remember he had like an 11.5 ar of some kind like a cqbr or so, some shit uh and he had like offset irons that were both put on the handguard and an Oh yeah, you're talking no time to die. Yeah, he had a Mark 18 motto in that movie. Yeah, and he, yep, he had offset, offset irons iron. on a cack rail. Yeah, like a like a delta ring quad rail. A lot of the people mm-hmm. listening to this are either going to cringe or not have any idea what the fuck I'm talking about. But <laughs> it, it was like a super redundant. Like only a person who doesn't shoot. Go- like he had backup irons and backup irons and an EOTech. Well, yeah, and the, 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 again, insult to injury on the build, they put the offset irons on. He's got a fixed front sight because it's a Mark 18 uh, yeah. motto, and it doesn't have the uh, – they didn't put a, a folding or fixed rear sight. And then they put, instead of a real EOTech, it's an airsoft knockoff they slapped on there. I didn't even notice that part, but that that's... Yeah, I, I have a buddy who posted a photo, and he was looking around, and he, he ID'd it, and you know you can find it Chinesium. It's because the uh, – you know, they have all these really badass photos that are super tight and have the light shining on the gun yeah. and the, the damn optic. It has the, you know, the shroud around it had teardrop shapes um, instead of the EOTex round holes <laughs> that oh. only matches with like, like Chineseium variants of the, yeah. of the EOTech. And then of course he had a foot and a half long suppressor on a 10.5 or 10.3 gun. Yeah. We, we had a Matt Saranowski on, I don't know what happened to that episode. I'm pretty sure it just like, Back in the early days of us using Zencaster, a lot of files used to get corrupted. We lost like hmm. I want to say five or six episodes just to the fucking ether. But it was super interesting <laughs> because because he was an armorer on uh, film, and mm-hmm. uh, and he talked about a lot of how this stuff goes together. And I went to visit him, and they just have like bins and bins and bins of like EOTech, Aimpoint, like all this Trigicon stuff, all these you know like various. Um, like expensive red dots and you look through them and none of them work but they're not airsoft knockoffs either they're actually returns like they're they're uh that's clever yeah they're unserviceable like broken warranty returns and no actual like professional relationship no 
contracts signed, nothing like that. Like big companies will just give film studios this stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they? It's like yeah. a, it's. I mean, it is free advertising, and what better to do that than pay to have it all thrown into a dumpster? That that's awesome. Yeah. It's like you, you can't really do anything with it anyways. It's basically just mm-hmm. scrap value. Um, so just give them to film studios and you get immediate free advertising. The same reason we see fucking five eleven in every single action movie. Like you, you see a scene where people were, are wearing tactical gear. It's all five eleven play carriers. Same reason. Uh, apparently they're the yep. only big company that holds stock of play carriers enough to actually outfit an entire movie set immediately. It's probably that reason too. They had rows and rows and rows of them, but like you can't go to like, I don't know, T-Rex arms or something like that being, hey, give us a mm-hmm. hundred light carriers on Thursday and they all need yeah. to be this specific color. Um, That's kind of the fun thing watching with like the, uh, like the Bond movies, like if not, not on the firearm side, obviously, but like on the, on the clothing and everything. Cause yeah. the, the, the Bond brand is a giant brand at this point too. Right. Yeah. And oftentimes if they bring something on like suits, they have to have an, obs- an obscene amount of them and they're bespoke made often. Or they're, you know, made to measure at least or and then there's there's variants on variants because of different levels of distressing. And you kind of hear these interviews, some of these shops that are like small and they're they're being brought on because Daniel Craig really liked their sunglasses or because he really liked the shirt or whatever the case may be. And they're like, yeah, we kind of just stopped doing everything and worked through the night to make sure we can actually get on the film. Um, it's funny you bring up 511, though, because um, one thing I guess I didn't explain it, so I probably should. The, the book. um is covering the guns of James Bond in both all of the books, which include Ian Fleming and continuation authors. So 70 years of literary writing and then 60 years of cinema. So the 25 official films and then the offshoot unofficial ones are being talked about too. Yeah. So when one of the books, uh, carte Blanc is written by Jeffrey Deaver and it was written in like the mid two thousands. Like we're talking peak five eleven era, right? And you are yeah. one chapter into this book, and James Bond is in Afghanistan. He is wearing 511 Tactical and OD Green, head to toe. He has a black leather pancake holster on his, you know, at the three o'clock position with a 40 caliber Walther PPS M1 in the holster, and he's got Oakley sunglasses. Oh my God. So he looks and like he, he just walked out of, like, yeah, 511 catalog. Like yeah, yeah. Like, like, you know, it's, I, I remember reading that for the first time and I was like 15 and I was like, what in the hell? Yeah, um, it's like it really just throws you out of it. Which yeah. I mean, and he's like, like, I'm, I'm in concealment. And I'm like, dude, you're in the middle East and you're, you're wearing, I am an operator. Yeah. Just like, you're a it, white dude clad head to toe in 511 carrying a Walther. Like you're not from here. Yeah. In an American round at that. Yeah in the American round. So I, I get it. Like I, I'm not, I'm not deriding it. And one of the things that would be very, very exhausting to do would be to beat up a ton of time in writing, like explaining all the issues with everything Fleming did or all the movies did. Like I'm here to celebrate the stuff, but every once in a while you can take a step back and go, so this only makes sense if you see where it was written or when or why, and it doesn't really make sense yeah. at all. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's not really like they're not Jack Carr. They're not, you know, no, no. Jack does a phenomenal 
job. I I love I I've, I've said it once and I'll say it I'll say it a thousand times. He he is the modern equivalent of like an Ian Fleming as a writer, um, yeah. because in every other detail, if you've ever read a Fleming novel, he is the king of esoteric detail. He had such a passion for you pick up a book and you're reading it and he has every brand of whatever the soap is being used, the fabric of the suits, the way they're cut. You, you, you're like in this time capsule of reality when you step into one of those books. And honestly, that's what I'm most excited about Jack's books in like a decade is kind of like seeing like what was in vogue, not only politically, because he does such a great job there. I mean, he's incredibly well-read, but then in the tools, right? Like, oh, okay, these, this was like the cutting edge gear and like knives and firearms and carry methods. And I love that he hasn't like picked a gun and stuck with it. Like the first book, he's got like a Glock 43 at the appendix for a while for deep concealment. And then he's on the SIGs after that. Like he, he kind of, he, he bounces around and it's really fun. Aww, he's the mom for James Bond. He is, he's a big, I mean, he, Jack's a big SIG guy anyway. Cause I mean, he carried the 226 in the seals. Yeah. Okay. That, that does track. I remember that, that was a, a big uh, plot point in the show, Terminal List. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which yeah, fantastic it, it, show. I, I haven't really watched a lot of TV in this last little while, but Terminal List was one of them and it was very well done. Yeah, I think that's one of those cool shows where all the stars align. They let they let you know they let Jack Carr be very involved in the story. So he was able to adapt his own work to the screen, which is a really big deal. He had the exact showrunner that he had envisioned. And I don't know if you knew this, but he actually when writing the book, the original book. Um, because he, he says this a lot, you know, growing up in the eighties and watching all these books turned into movies like first blood and everything else. Um, he liked to envision who was going to be playing the character and he saw parks and rec era, Chris Pratt as James Reese. And really? then he gets Chris Pratt to play him. Yeah. Cause, uh, he did a, he did a small part in zero dark 30. So he plays as yes, like, yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was like right when that had happened. And so. He does a number of interviews where he's talked about this and he could always say it better than I could, but uh, Jack mentioned, he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm going to make this guy do some really, really bad stuff. Like it's going to be, it's going to get really dark. It's going to get really gritty. And I need someone who is warm and authentic and who can be redeemed as a, as a, as a hero here and not just walk away as like the revenge fueled villain Right, because he, he wanted to make it into a into a series. Yeah. And clearly, he, has very, I mean, you've, very you've got a, a dude like disemboweling people and uh, streaming mm-hmm. their guts on the ceilings. Um, yeah, that, that and if you think my... that's violent, you should read the book because the scene in the book is much darker. Yeah, my mind jumps to that like meme of Chris Pratt making the the surprised oh smile face in Parks and Rec. <laughs> yeah, like as Andy Dwyer, I I love that show. Yeah, no, it's it's so much fun. My wife is is obsessed with it. I can't do the the cringe humor super well. She's so like if she puts on the office, I've got headphones and a podcast in. Um, yeah, I just can't I just can't do it. But if she she's watching Parks and Rec, I I can enjoy it. And yeah, he's definitely the the show stealer there. And yeah, him him is the is the lead is just a blast. So yeah. there's my plug for the Terminalist series. Please read those if you like James Bond yeah. I, or I, just I need like to guns read. and current fiction. Yeah, I need to to read more books, but I think that requires me to learn how to read first. Um, well, you know, one step at a time, brother. One step at a time. I'm, I'm working. The James on like- Bond books are yeah. little novellas. They're only like 250 pages to 300 pages. They could fit in your back pocket. You could read it out loud, one word at a time. Do a chapter I'll, at a time. I'll, 
Oh man, I wonder what's going to happen to James Bond now that, uh, spoiler alert, you probably don't care if you haven't seen it by now, so spoiler alert, maybe just like go ahead the next 15 seconds if for whatever reason you're the one person who gives a fuck. Uh, James Bond's super dies at the last, the, the end. There's, there's no even question about it. He gets hit by a fucking missile. Um, oh, he gets I hit by like 50. What? Yeah, yeah, oh, no, he, the, he is like about reason. as dead as dead gets. Like they, yeah. I figured they got away and make it a little ambiguous. It's like, no, that guy is paste he's like a multiplied sludge um mm-hmm. like, yeah, they they, uh, they they came up with like the most convoluted he can't live because he might kill the people he loves plot line yeah and then and then they're like well there's only one thing we can do <laughs> and they just murk him but no yeah, i uh, they, they kill them about as much as you can kill someone in a movie yeah yeah i i remember watching that in i saw it in chicago at a press screening, I got invited out to go do some, one of those. So I did a up and down trip. I'm, I'm based in Kansas city to, to the Chicago area. So I flew there in the morning and then I flew oh, back so at sorry. night just to see this movie. And I'm, I'm very surprised I made both flights to be honest, but yeah, it was timed with the actual like world premiere in London. So I was, thank God watching it at the same time as everybody else. And yeah, I, I remember I was one of the few people who kept, who just stayed in my seat through the credits because the most important words in cinema, if you're a James Bond fan, appear at the very end of the credits where it says James Bond will return. Yes. And we, we get those words again. So, you know, the Craig era is obviously a, a hard reboot. Casino Royale, they had they didn't have the rights to it for a long, long time because Ian Fleming had sold them. Um, yeah. And so they rebooted in the era of Batman Begins and reboots being the hot new ticket. And we get a cover to cover story of this version of James Bond, which is, is pretty fun. I think it's a good time. I do like the fact that like they, they brought everything around. There was one thing that, and I I know this is going to be me and this isn't going to be true to Fleming and you as an actual Bond aficionado can probably say more about it than I can. But I really liked the theory that James Bond was not a a name. It was more a moniker. It was more a uh, name given to a series of agents. So it tied all the universes together. You know, Daniel. Yeah, you're right. I hate that. that uh, Sorry. (laughs) I said, no, you're right. I do hate that one. (laughs) I, I, because I, I liked it. And when they finally got around to, to, uh, him seeing his family's home but i I don't know i just like the idea of roger moore and uh, daniel craig and pierce brosnan all existing within the same world Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's weird because like they they did the reboot thing before a reboot was a thing like they obviously had to soft reboot the franchise every time they brought in a new actor because but then but then they do callbacks to all the old movies like constantly um And so there'd be like an implication, like in the eighties, it's the same dude who was the same age in the sixties. And I, I've never liked that part of it. It was, it's almost like reading like Batman comics. Yeah. Like Batman is perpetually 35 years old, but now he has a kid who is in his like mid teens and 15 sidekicks. I'm like, did this all happen in the span of three and a half years? Yeah. Um, Like what's the, that 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 kind of stuff when the lore gets over cumbersome is really hard. So I do enjoy the opportunity to kind of to kind of reboot it. Or a lot of my my favorite continuation novels are period sets. So they actually take it back to the Fleming world. Um yeah. or they, they kind of do a soft reset like in like carte blanche and put them in modern day and make him a whole new modern character. So Yeah. 
It's a it's a weird thing. No, I've definitely seen that conspiracy theory a few times, and it, it irks me, but it's okay. I, I get it. Everyone's allowed to have an opinion, whether it's one I yeah, agree I, with. I mean, like, continuity-wise, none, none of it really works. No, um, not at all. Yeah. N- not I, at I all. Yeah, because you, you have such a fantastical world to begin with. I remember it did annoy me a little bit with uh, Spectre when they tried to tie all the movies mm-hmm. together, but it was pretty clear that it wasn't written to be like that. So no, yeah, you, the you had, uh, uh, Christoph Waltz, who is just a fucking yep. powerhouse of a human being, and even he didn't manage to sell it to me. And I, I have quite a suspension for of disbelief. So yeah, they. Uh, I I love Eon. The the it's it's the same family and the same production agency that's done. It's produced all these movies um, yeah. from beginning to end. And one thing that. I I do consider to be a, a clear complaint of them is they after after they did such a marvelous job with the Connery era where they kind of like created a trend they then chased trends almost exclusively um, yeah. and they don't know what to do with stuff when they get their hands on it like if you look to like yeah. the Roger Moore movies Live and Let Die that was like right in the middle of um like the big black exploitation film era and so they leaned really heavily into that and they made that movie. And then the next one, The Man with the Golden Gun, was like at the peak of Bruce Lee and Kung Fu style movies. And so they took a book that was set exclusively in like Jamaica and Cuba and put it in um, Southeast Asia and made it a Kung Fu movie. And then they send James Bond to space on the heels of Star Wars. Like that was their their whole process. And so yes. when in 2013, they finally got the rights back to the organization Spectre, um, instead of sitting on it and waiting two more movies for Daniel Craig to retire and to tie up his storyline nicely with quantum and everything else, they just threw in the hand grenade of Spectre and then they doubled down and like, Oh, and then we're going to make him his brother because that makes sense. Everyone calls it Brofeld, which was just awful. Um, It hurts. It physically hurts. Yeah. I I read a pretty good, um, kind of a breakdown on the the chasing of trends and how you can basically tie every James Bond from every era to both like the geopolitics and the cinema trends of the time like Pierce Brosnan mm-hmm. came in at the on the heels of the 90s action movie yeah. craze which is why why you see him like massacring like oh, waves yeah. upon waves of eastern european soldiers with a machine gun mm-hmm. as he drives the tank solo um like Brosnan, yeah, I mean, uh, the first two movies end with him in tactical gear, like yeah. full on 1990s, like, you know, again, on the heels of like the big action movies of like the late 80s, early 90s, and on the heels of obviously like Princess Gate and the the public announcement of like the SAS and like what they were able to do. He's at the end of Tomorrow Never Dies, head to toe in black tactical gear. Like, yeah. it's just, it was the time. It, it absolutely is. And it's cool because you, you really get to you get to see what the world really was at the time. And they try to bring as much cutting edge of the time stuff into the movies, but they yeah. are of their time. A hundred percent. And uh, kind of, kind of in that vein, I saw a fairly good, and you know, it's a theory. Everything's a theory. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the bringing all the worlds together and all the movies and creating a cohesive universe around Daniel Craig was the production house's uh answer to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how everything was trying to build cohesive universes of movies that everyone goes to see. That was the trend of the the mid-2000s, like the 2010s to yeah. 2015s. 
So that that was their attempt to make a James Bond cinematic universe, and it kind of fell in its face. Yeah, I mean, I think if if you're looking for the cinematic universe feel, I I really think you're you're cl more more close to uh, like No Time to Die, where they bring in he's retired, and so there's a new 007, and then you have Anna de Armas um, as this you know American agent in Cuba and stuff, um, where they like they're giving you these other agents and plot lines, and they actually were really into that idea. This was not this was not the first time they had approached that concept actually. In 2002, when Die Another Day came out, it was set up for um, Halle Berry to kind of be her own character, like the Jinx character. They they were planning to do some sort of like spinoff movie with her, yeah, as an agent with uh with all that, and it fell flat because they at post 9/11 they had to do a hard reboot, um, yeah, and that was and again trend chasing. Like I, I think I mentioned this just a little bit ago, like. Casino Royale is so very much of its time. It's an amazing movie, but it was in the same I era as be Batman favorite. Begins and The Born Identity. Yeah. They were like, we need a gritty reboot. Yeah. Have you seen The Raid? I think we talked about this the other day. It's like one of, one no, of my No, I wrote it down when we talked about it. I have not watched anything since we spoke last. I highly, highly recommend it. I'm going to bully you until you watch it later and anyone listening to this. Just a fantastic <laughs> movie of just... I mean, it's not quite as refined as a Bond movie. It is a formulaic. You, you ever see Dread, like the 2014 Dread? Yeah. That's one of my favorite movies, and it's very similar. I think it actually came out in the same year, which is you have cops. They go into a building. They are cut off from the outside world. No one knows they're there. They have to fight their way to the top and kill the bad guy. That's it. But it is so. Yeah. Yes. It, it's, it just works. It just yeah. works. It is a truly unique cinematic experience god this is the art and war podcast and we're getting into the fucking art um yeah we are yeah no uh there, there's a very good fight scene that takes place in a hallway where he just has like a knife and a baton and the camera barely cuts it all and he just plows his way through crowds and crowds of stuntmen that clearly are not unionized because they are just <laughs> getting absolutely demolished um yeah good movie well that's really that, that's like right in the the daredevil era too where like the hallway fight was like the thing the one yes. shot yeah i loved that um back when marvel wasn't just dog shit consume slop i actually really liked the uh the daredevil punisher oh dog. yeah yeah i, I yeah really... i feel like that back before marvel kind of fell apart back before netflix fell apart like when they were just like producing yeah. super high-end content to like yeah, bring where, you where in. they would give a young aspiring director with a vision a bunch of money and say hey make it about this character if you want just make a good movie we don't give a fuck and mm -hmm. they would actually create good movies like uh yeah like the the reboot of the punisher i grew up reading punisher like not not yeah. the weird gay whatever the fuck it turned into now but you ever read punisher max like garth ennis no but i i, I know garth ennis yeah I, i'd be surprised if you didn't like garth ennis mm -hmm. War, warren ellis like that entire like uh league of of writers but yeah he he did a 60 issue run of punisher back when you know comic books were cool or whatever um where uh -huh. it actually it uh, it followed the continuity of you know when the punisher came out back in vietnam era essentially he was a spider-man villain it followed that like uh he was a vietnam veteran he came back he had awful ptsd and he he wasn't 
really doing the right thing for the right reasons. He he was simply trying to uh, cope cope with uh, the loss of his family and his PTSD in a horrible way. And th- this sixty issue series just continued that. He's like, okay, well, he's a Vietnam veteran, so clearly he's like in his mid sixties. Um, right. He's really broken and not a good person and. Like none of the usual comic book isms were in there. It, it was mm-hmm. just a really sad story from beginning to end. And then he dies and that's it. Like there, there was no reboot. There's no nothing. He just fucking like there was one way and you know it from the beginning that this story could have gone, which is, you know, he he lived the way he died and he died the way he lived. And it, it was fantastic. And then they tried to turn into a movie and it was dog shit. But um, I yep. think the Netflix adaptation was a pr- about as close to a uh, a faithful representation or an adaptation of that arc that we could have got. No, I totally get that. I I haven't read that that run, but um, I I grew up with like Frank Miller's Batman, right? Like yes, the, yes, it's it's the, kind of it's similar. very much in that. Yeah, like where you have someone who's like an artist in their own right. And they are given mm-hmm. creative access. They're given to an IP that. and they're like, please, for the love of God, do something with this. Just do something, do anything. And I, I love yeah. that. I love that. That's generally how you get the best fiction, but these days, everything oh, absolutely. is corporate. Yeah, no, I think, like it, I think that's the, that's the, the worry slash hope, hope that I have with, um, with Amazon. I don't know if you knew this, but they, they have a controlling share now in the James Bond movie franchise. Ugh. they but it's there the eon still has like creative control i think it's like a 49 51 kind of situation but yeah. they we now have amazon money behind eon movies and so i'm hoping hoping they do right by us <clears throat> i really do i mean the worst like, thing I, they could do is the opposite yeah because i i truly think with the right creative team, you could make an excellent James Bond movie for like oh, yeah. $20 million. You could do it on a shoestring budget. Well, the, the original the ones right were done writing. on no money at all. Yeah. The best um, movies. I mean, the, the first floor, the first four Connery films, I mean, the budgets kept increasing, but I mean, Dr. No was a shoestring film. They did not expect yeah. a franchise to come out of it. They, they licensed all the books, but they, they created a masterpiece with yeah. just guts and guile, right? And yeah. so I think I'm hoping, I'm, I'm really hoping this is, this is my basic bond bitch opinion is that um, with the, uh, with the current trend of period set dramas, worst, best case, if, if Amazon greenlights something that isn't a movie, I would be more than happy to see like a Peaky Blinders or Crown or whatever type period set drama in the 60s, 50s of the original Fleming books, like series, you know, season by season, knocking out the original plot lines, period setting the character, make him smoke, make him drive the 1930s Bentley, make him a bastard and just like live in the world that Bond was originally written in just because we've never seen that on the screen. Yeah. Well, unfortunately enough, I I do think that the corporate hegemony is going to win this one and it's going to take place 24 in New York and uh Jaquifo well it's hard not on... to because of all the product placement stuff that's like, yeah. attached to it now i mean we, oh, we don't get a new movie or anything talked about but I, I get a marketing email from 007 store about 15 new licensed products that are over 500 dollars on a monthly basis 
<laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I noticed that it's, it's, uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Stefan, I'm going to call you out. He, he will occasionally send me like, uh, he, he wanted a, a war belt and like, mm -hmm. okay, shout out to AWS advanced Warfighting solutions. Yeah, there you go. Right? A good war belt, uh, or awful product read, but he, he sent me one. And it's like, Oh, well, this is was in James Bond. It's got a quick detach thing. It's got a button. You click it and it just comes off. Like, uh, you look at it, it's a really terrible design. Um, and it, I think a lot of consumers will see something in a movie and just not really think over it and go like, oh, well, James Bond uses that. It must be good. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's, I guess that's part of the fun for me is because, you know, before the book and what I, what I do day to day is I really like um, abusing the hell out of and using like screen accurate Bond pieces and kind yeah. of making them functional for daily carry. Like, Yes, I carried the, the 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 suede holster that you see in Inspector and Skyfall for two years before I put one together of my own. That was not just a suede pouch, but yeah, I carried that thing with its giant plastic clip and the the soft suede pouch for two years with the with screen accurate folding pocket knife and a fixed blade. And my wallet is from the same leather maker that makes the gloves that he's worn in the last five movies. I mean, if I, if, if you stood me up next time we see each other in person when we're at shot, um, I'll do my parlor trick and you can ask me what the bond reference is for every piece on my body slash in my pockets. And I could give you an explanation for every single one of them. Deal. Speaking of which, it's, I'm excited for magic. show. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing everyone again. Um, yes. It's, it's that like dangerous fun thing where it's, it's exhausting. It's chaotic. Um, but, you know, I used, I used to work at a, at a store, you know, I, I grew up behind the gun counter, like so many people in this industry, uh, gun counter range, we had the simulate, we, we did, we, we did a lot of stuff and I had so much fun there. And, you know, I don't ever want to work in that kind of world in that direct kind of world again, because it is just so burnout, but to do it for a week with some of my favorite people, this is my shout out to Cabot and Alchemy. Um, they, they brought me on last year to help fill in some gaps for them. And they brought me back again this next, this, this following year. And I love just standing there at the counter, telling everyone why I love product, talking about the guns, breaking it down in front of people, doing the photography, just, just being there and doing all that. It, um, a week at a time, it kind of, it, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It, it's, uh, you meet a lot of people at SHOT Show. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's nonstop. You run into everyone that you never, it's, I mean, it's, it's the smallest world in the world, the firearms community. Like there's, really there's is. little to no doubt about that. You, it's like a, everyone has like two degrees of separation away from someone you're trying to get a hold of or meet up with. Yeah. I, I, uh, you were basically like one of my primary shot show buddies last year. Like we, we, <laughs> uh, you basically babysat me while I wandered around, um, usually full of the free beers that random places were giving out. Um, uh -huh, you were really good at that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, God, I love the people watching there so much, though. It's like, okay, Arcteryx jacket and tan boots. Arcteryx jacket and tan boots. Okay, Arcteryx jacket and uh, green boots this time. And then there's a crowd yeah. full of Koreans in suits, and they probably work at PMC. Um, like seeing all the shot show archetypes, I kind of want to do like oh, a, yeah. bingo, a bingo card list this year and just like have people printed out. 
do a put put a Russian mobster on there because I swear one of my shot show stories from last year. I'm, I'm at the end of the week at the Alchemy booth. This guy walks up to me in head to toe like mobster black three piece suit with um black suede Louis Vuitton slippers and he walks up to me in the heaviest Russian accent, asks me how much all the guns in our booth are worth because he would like huh. to buy all of them in cash before we leave. Huh. He's, he's like, I come back and I pay cash. I'm like, that's not how this works. Like these are, you know, I can't, I can't just sell you these guns. He's like, no, no, no. I, I, I come back later. I, I have duffel. I'm like, you have duffel bag. He's like, I have duffel. <laughs> he's like, I, I bring cash. How many places he went to and how many places said yes. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. I, I told the owner of uh, of Alchemy and Cabot that I'm like, hey guys, just want to let you know um, if you get a cold call from a guy who sounds like he's off the Soviet block, like just he is real and he was here. I did see him. That is really, really, really funny. Um... And I'm just glad I got a hold of him instead of uh, Eli. Eli wasn't at the booth and, you know, he's got a heavy Southern accent. So the two of them, like, translating between each other probably would have been amazing people watching. Yeah. But the God, the people watching is so good. We stayed at a Circus Circus last year because, like, we, we booked last minute. And it was like, oh, this, mm-hmm. this is a cheap deal for a hotel, not knowing Circus Circus's reputation or <laughs> what kind of a place it is. And now, now that I've been there, I see memes about it all the time. It's like, oh, you know... Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, it well, was, you know, it was, it was kind of clean in the '60s when they filmed a Bond movie in Vegas, but what, everything did, looks did they, the exact did, same. Did they film a Bond movie in Circus Circus? Because that that like from what I saw there, I cannot imagine that it's it, it is comparatively a slum. Yeah, um, they at least did the out, you know, the the, the exteriors um, there. I'm pretty sure the casino floors that they used were we're not in vegas for a couple of them but i'm pretty sure they did a lot of stuff inside circus circus too actually but it probably hasn't changed too much aside from the wall decorations since yeah i I can see how it would actually look nice if they removed all the people and oh yeah the the big thing is the people and Mm -hmm. just like deep cleaned everything when when it was made it probably looked you know like any other i i just don't like casinos in general i don't even really like drinking and i don't gamble as a rule um yeah, I I don't I don't do the Vegas thing. I yeah. I know that kind of that sounds counterintuitive, I guess, as like the big obsessive Bond guy. But I like playing cards. Yeah. But I don't feel the need to gamble in front of um, electronic slot machines or yeah with with someone at like a you know blackjack table with a dead look in their eyes or whatever. Like it that yeah. isn't stimulating to me. Like I feel like with the electronic slots and with everything we've got, it. It, it killed whatever magic people were trying to create about Vegas to begin with. And yeah. it kind of just turned it into what it is today. And it's, it, it's, it's hard and it's sad. I mean, the first year I was at shot <clears throat> when I was with my previous company, we were staying, I was staying like three or four blocks away. It was a 20 minute walk um, to the, to the Venetian for the show. And I remember I'd get up at like five thirty six AM. I'd put on a suit and I'd, I'd walk the five blocks and they'd be, you get out, you get out of the elevator on the main floor. And there's people that are there with a full ashtray and a slot machine covered in empty drinks. And you don't know if they're starting their morning or they're finishing their night. Um, All you know is you want to get out of that building as quickly as possible because you're choking on the cigarette smoke already, but you get outside and it's not much better because they're literally hosing urine and fecal matter off the streets. You're stepping over all that in addition to people who are sleeping out there. I mean, it's a, 
it's really juxtaposed because like I don't think anywhere else in the world can handle what we what shows like this are. But on the other hand, like going there is just such a slog. Yeah. You know, I would be inclined to believe that. It's I I hate looking into the marketing psychology and everything that goes into keeping these people gambling all night, keeping these people oh, yeah. sitting at like uh the, the lack of windows, the constantly mm-hmm. full of alcohol. Um all, all of these little Yeah, the, things... the bright lights, the stimulating lights and noises. I mean, yeah, I'm a I'm a marketing major by trade, which obviously is basically just a psychology, sociology degree. And yeah. which again, I guess means nothing, but I, it's what I do professionally. And yeah, I mean, it's like the, it is by definition, the, the most problematic things that you could do in that industry cranked to 11. Yeah, a hundred percent. But um, I, I do remember the one good thing about Circus Circus is it does have a Popeyes in the lobby, which is probably how I ended up getting <laughs> out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. It, it's a problem. I basically haven't eaten fast food since I got to America, but I will make an exception for that dirty fucking bird. Um, <laughs> we'll have like a, I'll make sure to buy like a bag of clementines or something so you don't get scurvy in Vegas. I don't get scurvy. <laughs> yeah, well, you, uh, had, you had gout this last time, so we just don't know what's going to happen. Oh, th- this time my heart's just going to pop. It's going to explode like an overripe tomato. Um <laughs> But I, I am really looking forward to just like people watching all of this depression, and um, well, that's uh, not dark at all. It's, it's a little bit. A You're little like bit. I can't wait to see the decline and decay of humanity right I, in I front do, of me. It, just like everything that's wrong with Western civilization shoved into a, a few uh, casinos. I am definitely going to wear shoes with comfy soles. Um, yeah, you probably should this time. I, I, I you, you wore maybe, like, maybe fucking leather leather uh, dress shoes the entire time i wore altama yeah. assaults and i felt like i was going to fucking die i even put dr shoals in them like uh orthopedic <laughs> soles. yeah but I, I walked some really fucking far um yeah i mean i i was averaging like a 10 to 15 miles a day on foot between yeah. like walking the floor and then you walk i mean you walk everywhere the entire time obviously but I also live out of like my my dress shoes slash boots like my daily yeah. wears. I'm not, I'm not like wearing like patent leather shoes every day, or like yeah. suede two eyelet chuckas. But that's like the shoe from like the Daniel Craig era, um, and all of his like neat casual wardrobe. And those were kind of the derby style was like really big in the Connery era, and they kind of just fit everything I want to wear or do. Yeah. And so yeah, those are like a pair of dress boots. But you get used to it, I guess. I just don't mind. Yeah. Um, I'm impressed. It's kind of like it's, it's kind of like carrying like a PPK. Like people make yeah. fun of me for it, but it's it what make it's what makes me happy and it works really well for me. So I really can't complain. Yeah, if it works and if you can put shots downrange with it, fuck it. Yeah, yeah. I was just at Walther, and um, you know, I'm sure they were just patting me on the head. But we we were shooting all together, and at the end of it, um, they're like, "Oh, you should shoot your your PPK." And so I, I I cleared the mag out of the hollow points, and I grabbed five spare magazines and just shoved them in my pocket. Um, Drew and Put put together a pretty good like you know palm palm and a half size group with with all those mags in a pretty pretty efficient time span and the my friends there are like you know like we don't shoot the PPK as much as you do clearly <laughs> you're shooting it a little better than than what we would consider ourselves to be able to do it but he was also kicking my ass with this PDP so you know it's quid pro quo yeah. there it's what you train with and I yeah it I work like... from home and I dry fire my PPK literally every hour of the day. Yeah, and that that does help, man. I I haven't been dry firing as much as I usually do lately, and it is 
it's definitely made a difference in the bad way. Yeah, it's it's crazy like how how easy it is to to kind of forget those skills and like they get sloppy and soft. That is one of my favorite things. I have a a blog that I wrote for for Bond fans, you know, because one of the things I really like to do is inundate people into our world via this lens of pop culture that's like not a shocking thing for people in I guess like my generation, right? Because that's like the, the T-Rex arms approach with like modern warfare and like the video games, right? But yeah. Like I think James Bond is like such a global brand that isn't people know is like violent, but it's like tongue in cheek, right? Yeah. Like guns it, are the core part of the character, but it's so much more. And people try to like live a lifestyle in every other way. So yeah. I try to introduce people to our world via via James Bond. And one of the things that was really cool is if you read all the Fleming novels, he was obsessed with dry fire. Like really? That's the books, interesting. The books have James Bond clearing his gun. Yeah, like 1953, the very first book has him stripping the mag out of this little tiny 25 auto Beretta, you know, racking the the round out of the chamber, emptying the magazine, dropping the hammer on, or striker, dropping the striker on the, the empty chamber, racking it a few times, reloading it, putting it in the holster, and then doing a check in the mirror to make sure he wasn't printing before straightening his tie and leaving. That is actually before it's time. It's and so like even for and and that's why I when I say like I'm here to celebrate stuff like he got a lot of details wrong on like firearm stuff but that's like yeah, a reoccurring Brit. thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean he yeah he, he was a British guy he was, I mean he was in the service but he was he was on a desk jockey side of it most of the time and so like it's not like he was living breathing and dying the world of firearms but he was so passionate about like those types of details you read something like that. And if you're a firearms person or not, you get like immediately engaged with it. So yeah, I wrote an article kind of consolidating all these uh, different things that happened in the Fleming novels, like how to train like James Bond. And like, this is like to the max, like what he did. And this is what a Bond on the road would be doing in a hotel room with his PPK before he leaves is dry fire practice, reloading it into the holster and disappearing into the night. Like that's just, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is actually interesting. And, and dry fire hasn't really become a, I remember even five years ago, more like, Oh yeah. It was contentious. You know, people would say like, mm-hmm. why, why are you doing that? Why? You're, well, you're yeah. Wasting. And it, that, that was like 10 years ago. It was the big, well, first of all, you don't need to do it. And second of all, you better damn well be using a snap cap. So you don't destroy the springs on your guns. And yeah. I mean, the, the, the amount of lore and the amount of insistence and expertise that people have on every, every, facet of this world when like we're not all gunsmiths and it's okay to acknowledge where your understanding of an issue lapses or where you know that knowledge gap exists yeah so it's it's interesting it's interesting to watch that's been the hardest part for for the writing of the book too honestly is like there's not a lot of good scholarly research that is really in our industry at all and so when you want to write about firearms and their usage over time and this and that yeah you know there's only so many sources that they are that aren't just like word of mouth and yeah. it's like and, well and even I get... a lot of word of mouth yeah. is based on like anecdotal experiences like yes this is yeah. the best thing that exists i used it to like basically guard a base in kandahar afghanistan for for six months therefore it is mm-hmm. the best thing because it's what the government issued me um yeah like th- this uh white light which is anemic by modern standards is the best thing because it worked really well in my two deployments on just like 
shooting fucking people like shepherds living in mm-hmm. caves like uh things change and you're right there isn't really an objective measure of basically anything like uh, no and it, the hardest part for me was especially i i went to sit down to write about the asp nine millimeter the asp right yeah. And because it's it's used in the bulk of the continuation novels by an author named John Gardner. And I was like, OK, I'll knock this out in like a month. It took me almost two and a half months just because I was exhausting myself. Like I had to keep coming back to it while writing other parts of this book, um, yeah. using the word purportedly or whatever, because I, I had all these articles. I, I had gone to some people who used to be writers in the firearms industry in the world in the 80s, and they were sending me. Um, PDF scans of all these articles that are primary sources at the time, but all they're doing is quoting each other. One guy makes some anecdotal claim, and then the next 10 articles say the same thing. Yeah. Like, Hell, there was no proof to any of it. That is, that's even true now. It's uh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In, in an episode a little while ago, I complained about this dog shit. I hate it. I hate it. Whoever designed these things, fuck you. Um, 22LR <laughs> double barrel revolver that shot two yeah. shots. With, I fucking hate that thing Uh, that thing is like meme worthy dog shit um and every article i could find on it because i i hated this thing so much i went down like an autistically deep hole (laughs) researching it for reasons to hate it even more um after after using it and everyone's Mm -hmm. reviews were like oh yes this is great this thing is fantastic by the way it shoots a like three feet higher than where the irons are aiming at at you know, five yards, but, but who aim cares? super low. <laughs> yeah. Just aim really low. It's not like you're using this sort of punching distance anyway. It's like, what the fuck? Like if your only metric for, if this gun is good or not, is if it goes bang every time you're a fucking retard. But like when, when I, I look into anecdotal gun reporting, it's remember that like, I, I was never part of this, but like that whole kerfuffle on the internet about like reporting in video games a few years ago. Yeah. And just like how all of it was is fake. I remember when someone came to me about it years ago, my response was basically, well, it's writing on the Internet. It's reporting in general. Reporting is fake. Like basically all product reporting, all anything like there's a very stringent um, Mm -hmm. level of. I guess like ethical morality that it, it takes to just not be a piece of shit when you're talking about products or even know what the hell you're talking about. Most people fall very, very short of that. You can't. You well, can't yeah. Tra- Cause I mean, a lot of people are like, well, if it works to a level of like even 30 to 40%, like of adequacy, they're happy to write a glowing review about it if they get it for free. I mean, that's, that's an issue that, that transcends any industry, but I mean, it, it, it it's bad. Like the product side of it's awful, but you know, I'm, I, I did, this is really where my nerd shows. I did debate for 10 years and in college, what I would do just to prove a point of how absurd everything is. And just to make it to where I had more sanity because not to get too deep into it, but in college debate, the only way you can win is if you out left your opponent. So if they say abolish the police, you say actually abolishing the police doesn't work. You have to like burn the entire world to the ground. Like that's the, That's that, that's the extremes that they go to in, in that kind of realm. And so what I was doing was I would write like scenarios. If if my thing didn't happen, here's what's going to happen. And I would just take the plot of a Bond movie and take scholarly writing and current articles that were written up to the minute, put five or six of them together to create the evidence story and 
literally recreate the plot line of a Bond movie. And I would just name it after the Bond movie. Like I literally went around because 10 minutes beforehand, I had cut together a Tomorrow Never Dies advantage about satellites getting hacked to spoof GPS signal in the South China Sea, causing a regional war that leads a nuclear disaster with five articles. Yeah. You can make any story happen with any any link thing that you do. So like, I'm very apathetic to, did you see XYZ or did you read? I'm like, well, if I don't see it, hear it or feel it myself, like I have, I have a hard time like believing what's being told me unless I like truly trust the source. Yes, me me too. And I, I know a lot of people and like, God, some of them are really good friends, but they're, they're constantly stressing over like, oh, you know, like the there's going to be you know, bombs on American soil and like, oh, on this day, the Hamas is going to storm over the, the southern border and so and so. And there, there's so much noise and fear mongering and everything else. And like, well, I do think there's very real things that, you know, everyone has to worry about and, and you know, rising crime, you know, eggs costing X amount. Uh, poverty leads to crime, you know, may, uh, th- things about the border. Who fucking knows? I don't care. Um, like, there, there's yeah, that's not that's not to me saying at all that like being nuanced or being well read is a, is a sin. It just yeah. it, it does mean that it, it actually the, the the being the nuanced part is the most important part about it. Like yeah, the you should be well read on geopolitics because they do yes. matter, and you should understand to what degree they impact your day to day life. Like you can't live in fear of what's going on in the world, but you should at least know what's happening because it's you live in a free society, and that means it's your obligation as an individual to, to be well-informed. And and right now you have to dig even harder to be well-informed, but yeah, because all the more more reason to do it. Yeah. And, and like, as with all things, just follow the money, like who is funding what, what sells the most advertisers space. I think like, yeah, start with why. Yeah. Why? Not to quote Simon Sinek, which is a marketing writer, but that is a really good book. And it is a really good example. Like, just philosophically start with the why behind what someone's trying to say like the debate word we would always use like what is the warrant of the card like what are they trying to tell you yeah you read an article okay you walk away tell me exactly what they are trying to tell you and tell me what they're trying to say in the article that actually proves that or how is it structured and then what else who else is saying the same thing about other things and you can go down the whole rabbit hole um i i like that side of of the world and it's it's disappointing that that we don't see that very often. Like when you see a political debate or anything like that, people just kind of anecdotally say things like, I want to see citations. I want to hear where you're getting the information. Buzzwords are exhausting. I I did a debate actually last year. Um, It was like this, this organization called American public square had invited my company out. Oh, I remember that you did really well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I was on a panel of five people and I was the only program person on the panel. I was sitting up there with like the largest, I think Methodist or Baptist preacher in the country. He had like one of the largest congregations and had like five or six mega churches, I think in the, in the, our region, a guy who was the director of a giant healthcare organization here in Kansas city, um, a mom's demand action elected state representative and another college and a college student. Um, I really felt bad for her because she had no business being up there and she was getting really freaked out and stressed. Like it was, it was not a good, they did not prep her very well, but yeah. I, I remember like I was the only one who showed up with, with my own research. Like I had a laptop in front of me. I had done, I think I had like a 400 page metadata file I had put together. I, I read every Supreme court case to the T um, 
the Bruin decision and everything else. And I, I remember I, I was super irked. I read directly from the Bruin decision. I, I, I read the Supreme Court text and they had fact checkers, which are just public librarians who were pulling up articles to tell you if you were right or wrong, if someone requested it. And they read someone else's legal opinion on the case telling me that I was wrong. I'm like, well, I, I just read you the, the case text. I read you the primary source and it does not, you, you're, you're taking someone's extrapolation of that and making a new argument. I'm giving you the dead to rights. This is literally what it's saying. So that all, is... all that to say, like it, 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 it was fun, but. <laughs> yeah, but un unfortunately you're kind of right about the, uh, a, a lot of people I think will take, take opinions and headlines as primary sources oh, yeah. as opposed to the actual primary source yeah well that's that, that was everyone all, all they wanted to tell me they actually were getting frustrated with me because they're like what are you what are you trying to get at here i'm like well i'm trying to you, you told me this is a policy-oriented conversation we're having and you want to you want to create some sort of solvency and like the only way to get there is like being honest about like the world that you're actually in and yeah. so you should maybe like not just speak to platitudes but but read and one of the things they, they wanted me to do was actually sign a document of like the research they had done prior to the event saying that these are the bare facts we can all agree to. And I remember I had like three to four hour long conversations on the phone with the people who were putting on this debate because I was like, I can't sign this document. Half your sources are from like the Bloomberg, you know, organization for one of his many organizations for gun research. And like every town for gun violence is being cited. I'm like they're, you're citing a study that's creating an impact story about numbers like here's the doj report on it like like it or not this is as close to primary source as you can get on this for crime statistics so yeah maybe you should cite them instead of people who are making an opinion based on numbers and pulling cherry picking two or three numbers out of it i literally had to explain to them they were doing the same thing in their mind as like quoting the nra which obviously yeah. is it doesn't really it, it's not the same thing but speaking to them on a layman's level it, it made sense well, I imagine they got kind of poopy about that. Oh, they, they were happy. I was not the first person that they've had to work with to uh, adjust the document, but I, I was the only one who didn't sign it. I'm like, I, I literally, we edited it for hours and hours and hours, and I still walked into the debate. I'm like, I can't sign this form, guys. Like, you're, you're lying. Like, you're not, you're not, you didn't take, you're, you're not ethically Yeah, you're, you're not doing the facts. this in good faith. Right, and, you know, you're doing the best you can, and I respect that, but you're also not, and to me, that's, it's frustrating because that was my whole life, like the research side of it and getting the facts right. That's why it took me so long on the ASP section is because I just, I don't want to promote more cannon fodder. I, I want to be as honest and authentic as possible, especially knowing full well I'm writing to an audience that's primarily non-traditional shooters. Like I'm writing a book for Bond fans in the hopes to getting them excited about guns. Yeah. Like, so that that's my target market, and I, I I'm writing at a, a level deep enough to where like me and you would be excited about reading about these guns and their history and their story. But like yes, I'm looking forward at, to at it. the end of the day, the, a, a true thank you, a true Bond nerd, someone who's just like interested in James Bond and wants to have a holistic understanding of the character can pick it up, read a, a section or two with their morning coffee every day, and pick up like some cocktail conversation, start normalizing this stuff a lot more to them. Um, and then, you know, I want to get a holster in their waistband and get a PPK or PDP or whatever suits their fancy to get their smile on their face and a gun in their waistband and, and carry on. That's the goal. Yes.
I I need, and th- this is like only half related, but I, I've been having this conversation with you, and uh, what's your transfer has been giving me shit for it for a while. I need a gun <laughs> that is not. You, well, you know, you know the sort of stuff that I like. Mm-hmm. It's all like compensated, just ugly. You mil- love the cyberpunk aesthetic for sure. Yes, I. I it is I very much like, your aesthetic. I do like Glocks that look like I just pulled them off like a dead Militech guard, and then I'm going to go <laughs> like raid Arasaka Tower with Johnny Silverhand. Um, I, I I would like something like he he's been pushing me to get like a Beretta, but uh, mm-hmm. I I do think something that doesn't have anything on it would be nice. Maybe a Browning High Power. Maybe I'll I'll meet you in the middle and get a Peak PK. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the PPK is is such an easy place to start. Um, I I totally get what you mean. It's funny because I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum because I because I did grow up. I started working at a gun counter at like 17, and because we had the whole rental fleet, because we had access to all the toys all the time, I never bothered buying anything that was like modern, normal, whatever. Because yeah. I could always play with it. Like to me, they and I, I actually had to write the SOPs and I clean those guns. And so I, I, to me, they were my guns. And so I played with them whenever I felt like it's so all I did through high school and college was collect Bond guns. And so literally, when I got my 226R, that was the first gun I had that had a had a rail. So I put a yeah. flashlight on it. Um, and I just got a PDP uh, Pro SD, and oh, I that's really the like first those. like true customized gun that I I can I can work with now. So everything else I have is like. 1930s 1950s design and has a uh, little to no modifications able to it and i want to keep them screen accurate i enjoy it no the pdpsd is legit i i actually really like those like if i was to get into another ecosystem of like firearm it would probably be that like if i had to start again and you know wean myself off the the uh the ecosystem and parts compatibility teat that is glock it'd probably be that or like czp10 or something yeah no i i like both those platforms i i'm a sucker for walther for so many reasons um, yes they're genuinely they're, nice like i, I tried yeah before and they are like i think slept on i don't know anyone who carries one other than you but yeah i i really on. feel like walther is doing such a cool job now with their I mean, I love their marketing team. They're, they're shooters first and foremost, which is awesome. Like you don't you don't meet a lot of people who can kind of in this industry that walk and shoot bubble gun at the same time on these yeah. bigger oh, man. brands. Yeah, you see that from Orbit at Shot Show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get the feeling like you start talking to someone that's like working a booth about the esoterics of like shooting a competition or carrying a gun for self defense, and the the more put together, quote unquote, they look like. You know, I'm not saying like put together in the sense of like double O debonair, but like a Walmart store general manager look. Um, the the less likely they are to have an opinion on any of those subjects because they're just there cutting paycheck and moving yeah. units. They can tell you the SKU numbers, but they couldn't tell you what it is. But these guys are like top tier level shooters. They work their asses off, and like the PDP was designed with with a whole set of dedicated shooters and competition and instructor people all around and. I love Walther USA because what's really cool is they're a they're a big name, but they're still a small business. Like there's there's a small team that works on everything every single day. Um, they really, really, really care about what they're doing, and they put top tier stuff out. Like they they're a little slower than than some people would like sometimes, and like 
getting the, the exact product out that they want. You know, everyone's clamoring for like a PPS M3 and they ate them alive a couple weeks back when a new product launch dropped and it was, it's a reskin PK380. It's the PD380, right? It, the P, PDP aesthetics slapped onto a, a PK380, but they, they're just doing such a good job with the storytelling and the marketing. I don't know if you saw that launch video. I posted it on my channels as well. Um, but they literally made like a short film that was in the vein of like a James Reese, James Bond, and like a Jason Bourne with with their gun at, as the hero piece in this little short film. And that's how they're going to be launching products moving forward is through this new lens and with like a character and an arc and these stories. And they're going to globe trot. And I don't see anyone else doing stuff like that. Um, that's kind of bad. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Last Shot Show. I remember everyone was talking about an ad a revolver company did. I can't remember. Henry, maybe? No. It, it was uh, a fake ad for like a, a Western, yeah, cowboy, modern thriller. And it looked mm -hmm. really good. Like, I would have watched that. But yeah, I, I think, I, I I think like that, that kind of stuff's that, really fun. Yeah, the, the high concept, kind of cinematic. Um, I, I like that. I, th I think there should be more of that. Well, I think it works well with Walter too, because it like, it, it nods to their cinematic roots, obviously, because the James Bond relationship is so organic. I mean, it they were written into the books and it kind of just fell into their lap, but it allows them to kind of have their own spin on it. Yeah. Um, and they, they're doing their own thing. They have their own legally people. distinct BAME's job. Yes, it, it is. It is legally distinct a lot more than that. Uh, I think that they're just going with W man. There's like Walter man right now to kind of, give you the the rundown but they're like they're doing villains and they're now gonna like they're literally launching all of their guns through this lens and so i remember i posted about it and i was getting comments where people were flaming it they're like the, the, you know i don't see anything double o about all of this all i see is a gun that i didn't want like you're not getting it though. okay like, don't buy me, it like right i'm like well, well the important part is like a marketer is dealt the hand he is and he makes the best out of it and it's a good gun it's in the right spot right I, I like it better than anything else in that single stack 380 market like i hate the shield easy i could go on for hours why i hate that gun but it fits that micro it's probably because you're not well. a, a 60 year old woman with like severe arthritis in the hands alzheimer's well yeah the, well, the thing the only reason why that gun's safe for her is because she's probably not going to be able to get it to discharge i watched so many old people and non-traditional shooters try to grip that gun and because of the way they inverted that grip safety um from like a traditional like 1911 style grip safety where it has to depress with the you know you have to have a really really positive grip to disengage it versus the 1911 safety where it, it pushes down this one pushes from above yeah. um these, these these old ladies weren't getting to able to shoot and i'm like you're telling me that someone who's frail who is your demographic here has to have an an 80 to 90 percent perfect grip in order to discharge this firearm in a in a high stress situation where they might not have a positive grip to begin with yeah uh, that 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 to me is the biggest arc um but all that to say like the marketing was the thing that i was trying to get across to people is like this is the aesthetics they're after there's going to be some really cool products long term they're going to be launched in this way like it's a legacy product it's a legacy brand and these people are working their asses off to to get you in that mindset which i just Man, I just love. I, I they're only four hours south of me. Um, I spent a week with them. I guess three days, but it felt like so much longer. A couple weeks back, and 
this is my biggest nerd out in the world. I, I got to build my own PPK series pistol on their yes, floor. Yes, it was the 007, right? Yeah, I was the 007th person they let do it. That's awesome. Um, it was like the coolest thing in the world. And I built a I built a PPKS in the Black Melon. I it was my it's my first PPKS series, which um, it's funny because I just told you about the Skyfall thing and how that irks me. But I love the series of guns, and it's what's cool about it from like a real world standpoint. Why I wanted one so bad was in my research for the book, I found what I believe to be the only authenticated suppressed use of a PPK series pistol by a military force, and that was. Maccabee Sog during Vietnam. Really? Um, you know, they got, yeah, they they requisitioned 10 Walther PPKSs in 32 and 380 auto threaded for silencers. And Interesting. there's there's I, I found the actual requisition report. Um I have found photos to authenticate it. They were ordered with um suppressed AK 47s actually, and there's photos of those two together. And the requisition form exists from the you know R and D agency that was producing these, and it matches the timeline. And I've spoken to primary sources who confirmed that they were issued these pistols, um, which is like the coolest thing in the world. So obviously, I'm going to get this thing drop in a Walther PP barrel and get that thing threaded because I I, I want to have a dedicated silenced Walther to begin with, but the whole thesis of what I'm working on with this big project is like telling real world stories and not just like, this is a gun that existed in a bond movie. This is what it looks like because you can go to the, you know, the internet movie firearms database to get that information. What, what I'm doing is sharing real world stories of the guns that happen to be in James Bond's hands in addition to the James Bond stuff. So you're getting like that, the blend of pop culture and reality that I'm obsessed with. I've gotten to, interview some really, really cool people. You mentioned Jack Carr earlier. Um, yes. There's going to be some really cool stuff with he and I in this book that I think you guys will enjoy. Uh, he's a huge Bond nerd. He's been nothing but an amazing friend to me. Um, super nice guy. Um, but I've interviewed former CIA operatives, former DSS operatives, former British commandos, um, Navy SEALs. I mean, it, it's it's going to be really cool to kind of like hear their primary source stories in their own words with the tools of James Bond. Yeah, that is actually really cool. I'm looking forward to the book. I don't have a coffee table, but I'll have to buy one to put it on it. <laughs> Just get a nice stand and put it on the wall for it, you know? Yeah. Whatever you're allowed to do. Yeah. I what should, makes you uh... feel better? I, I've intentionally designed it around, um, like, the cover is designed for, I, I had my my wife is proofing it. I'm, I'm asking her to, like, what what I would be allowed to leave out in our living room versus yeah. like a super gunny looking book like it is a gun book don't get me wrong and it does but it has like that james bond feeling and flair to it where it's like very classic traditional looks really clean where she'd let me leave it out in our living room versus like hiding it on the shelf yeah i think i'm trying to think about like what books i have in my living room i'm pretty sure it's just like an old copy of the king in yellow and a <laughs> small unit tactics um and that, that's basically it yeah i've got i've got cases and cases of books right now my living room shelf has um all my my james bond paperbacks i love the 1960s signet there's the u.s paperbacks that they're palm size you can fit one in your back pockets i've i've traveled all over the world um with them i keep them in my back pocket when i hike i i abuse the hell out of the things and they're they're sitting on the shelf right next to all of jack's books um his whole series in addition to a bunch of my other favorite thrillers and 
yeah. history, but I mean, I, I bought probably a hundred, hundred fifty books just for like snippets of research for for this book alone. So it's yeah. been. Do, do you have a potential uh, release date or a deadline? We are looking for for late spring. So like. It depends on when layout, because that's the hardest part. The hardest part has been globetrotting. Like the team has been doing such a great job traveling around the world to capture some of these guns because they're so rare. Yeah. Like, do you know how hard it is to find a WA two thousand? I can imagine. I, I remember actually <laughs> doing a little bit of research on it after. Uh, I think a company is putting one out that takes AR fire control groups. Obviously, that's not the the real one. I yeah, it's the RA two thousand. Um, it's like. it's. It's it's really really cool. It's a kit yeah. gun. It's something that I'm gonna have to get at some point. And dude, there's sure. only 176 of the things that ever were built. So yeah. they're, I remember they're pretty really into it pretty after rare. Game. Yes. Well, you know those guys were huge James Bond nerds. That's why that gun's really? in that. Yeah, that, like a bunch of the that a bunch a of the lot, skins are James Bond themed. A lot of the missions have James Bond undertones to them. A lot of the guns yeah. are Bond guns. They're actually developing a Bond game right now. It's kind of been in it's been really? in progress for like the last three years they, they announced it that. like just before um just before march of 2020 and all that fun and uh it was just titled project 007 they did like a little gun barrel video and they've done nothing or said anything about it since i'm cautiously optimistic if the dev cycle is that long and it comes from a good studio maybe it'll actually be good yeah we haven't had a good james bond video game and since the Over playstation 2 era yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up on like Nightfire. I was, I was, I'm too, too young for like the N64 generation. I'm 26. Yeah. I was born in 97. So yeah, I, I missed that boat, but I grew up on like the Nightfire and um, from Russia with love, which was super fun. Yeah. Cause you know, Sean Connery came back and did the voice, but he sounds like a gravelly old man. Yeah. <laughs> I can't but remember those were what so much fun. game I, I grew up playing. I was mostly like a siphon filter kid, but uh, mm -hmm. my, my friend had a uh, Isaac from Schizocast. Uh, he hasn't been on in a little while, but he had a GameCube, and we uh, mm -hmm. we played a ton of James Bond shooters on that. And also, yeah, the N64 one, no odd jobs. I do have that set up in my basement now. Um, I'm very proud. I've got a retro media setup I've been putting together now that I bought a house, and it's a... Uh, I, I stole a tube TV off the side of the road that was getting dumped and I have a VCR. I've got an N64 and a PlayStation 2 um, all set up. You know, you turn on the tube TV and there's a high pitched whine as it's running as God intended. And <laughs> it's the only way to play those old games. Yeah. So much fun. I've tried playing them on a larger screen, but like, I think because like the, the cleaner refresh rate and everything on these like new flat screens, if you try to put like a pixelated video game on there, it gives you a freaking migraine. Yeah, it doesn't work. I've, it I've does been playing, not. Uh, the the new Alan Wake lately. I don't know how if you ever got into the old one. It came out like mm. 13, 14 years ago. <laughs> I uh, I have not installed my my consoles yet. I have them sitting on shelves because I told myself I can't I can't go down those rabbit holes again until I uh, until I finish writing. Like I'm close to having primary draft one done, and then we we go through the editing process, and then we go into layout. And so you know, I have enough things that are diverting attention before i like hop into a video game again i feel that immensely i actually hadn't turned my playstation on in about five or six months um yeah it, like it, it took about an hour to update everything that i had to do uh when i turned it on the other day it's just been a while haven't thought about it yeah i'm not a i'm not like a, a gamer really like, i grew up liking video games and i love playing them you know with friends and stuff and 
I think I kind of fell out of it like in late high school, but you know, I'll, I'll hop on occasionally when there's like a big game that like has a really cool story. Like, you know, I'm a sucker for like the Red Dead Redemptions of the world and stuff like oh, that. Dude, you, know, you, kind of, you kind of hop in and you just play like Red Dead Redemption 2 cover to cover um, yeah. or cover something to cover like Red that. Dead Redemption 2 is like a solid week though. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did not do my homework in college for a week. I did just play that game. I had to play it with yeah. headphones because uh, my, my my girlfriend, my my wife now, um, if we were hanging out with friends, she was like, I can't, I can't hang out and do homework with you while I'm hearing you murder people in the Wild West. Like, I'm going to need yeah. you to I need you to drop the volume on that but otherwise like i just or the arkham games i'm a huge batman nerd um yeah other than that like i just i just can't get into them maybe maybe i'm just that lame but i don't know i want i want to like them more just because my friends are into them and it's a good way to stay connected you know a lot of my friends that i went to college with live in st louis and so they're a really easy way to stay connected with folks i mean you know that obviously yeah especially transplanting yourself from one country to another. Yeah. But, Boldly uh, calling uh, your place a country. Nah, nah. I won't even, uh, I won't even say it out loud. I, I don't mm-hmm. think so. As, as soon as I left California, uh, I always call it a California. They're pretty <laughs> similar. Canada has ceased to be real for me. Yeah, no, it was always a myth for me. So it's good to know that like there are real people there and they, they, they made their exodus. That's good to know. Yeah. Anyways, though, uh, this is going to be a shorter episode because yeah. it is Thanksgiving and we all have, and I, I especially, as you know, have some uh, unfortunate large amount of cooking to do. Um, <laughs> You're not just going to get a Popeye's chicken and slap it on the table? I actually have a 19-pound uh, turkey from Winco. The closest wow. Popeye's is 90 minutes, or I'd actually consider that. Um, oh, I'm proud of you. I'm just I making stuffing. Stuff it. it's, it's like... God, what time is it? It's 7 p.m. on the night before Thanksgiving. I should probably start cooking. <laughs> but uh, we, we did hit our uh, our goal of about an hour and a half. Um, no, we crushed it. We, we got to ramble about Bond stuff. We've been talking about yes. doing this for, I we mean, a couple of years another... now. We've been like, hey, we should do this. And then we yeah. just never found each other. So this is really fun. Yes, we should do another before your book comes out. No, that would be so much fun. Um, I will let you know. We're going to go through the typical process that Headstamp does where it's a uh, launched to be a kickstarter so it'll be a whole campaign um i encourage you guys to to buy during that time when it's live mainly because you get to bully me into doing more work because there'll be kickstarter goals for like additional sections that i'll be forced to write or guns that we could capture maybe and they'll all be listed out as as additional goals inside of there that's how they've launched like a lot of their big books that like uh ian has written and stuff so i'll i'll have all that information i'm i'm really excited to have all that together because i mean this has been a dream for a long time now and just being able to talk to you guys about it is super exciting, but it's going to get, it's only going to get more fun from here. Yes. I I'm excited to see it and you're going to have to let me know how I can help. Cause uh, Absolutely, I'm brother. autistically doodle more things to uh, go in there <laughs> or, or Consider just that. I love text work that so much. It, it is every graphic designers. Uh, mm-hmm. being, it's your favorite. It's my favorite. <laughs> We'll get into all the font families. Don't you worry. There's plenty for the Bond world. There's 70 years of movies or 60 years of movies. 70 years of movies, and we have to do them legally distinct. Uh Uh-huh. That is half the battle. Yeah. (laughs) Before we uh, wrap up here, um, do you have any dad advice for our listeners? Oh, gosh. Um, That's hard. I'm not a dad yet. I am a godfather, and that's – I'm I'm Catholic, but I'm not that Catholic. 
I have a dog. I have a dog. There you go. But I don't. Yeah. I don't like to do that whole like a uh, that dinkwad thing that our generation does. I hate that that acronym even exists. Someone tried to apply it to me, and I like. Oh, it's a dual income, no kids with dog. Ha! I've never. It's like it makes me violently angry. Someone's like, "Well, you're just one of those." I'm like, "No, I am not. I I just bought a house. Give me give me some breathing room." But uh, gosh, I should have known that you were going to ask for dad advice. Um, we forget sometimes. Unfortunately, this is not one of those times. No, um, I think my I'll I'll give you a Bond quote. This is my favorite one, and it's it's. Sean Connery, this is what I consider to be my my advice to myself. I, I say it a lot. Is uh, When he was talking about in an interview becoming James Bond, because um, you know he was a bodybuilder and he was like a low-level actor at the time and he was trying to figure out how to like play this debonair character and like have all these mannerisms and stuff. I did he not said, know Sean Connery was a bodybuilder. That's yeah, he's a Scottish bodybuilder. They, um, Ian Fleming made fun of him when he got cast. He hated him originally actually he said that he was a a brute and oversized stuntman and all this um but the producer saw something different they saw a guy that they said looked dangerous while walking they said that he looked and acted like he walked like a panther like a you know like a coiled spring ready to strike um but all that to say he he slept in his suits famously he had to figure out how to kind of like be dangerous but also be well-mannered and he said, I've never had to work so hard to make everything look so easy. And I think that's the the magic to, to Bond. I think that's the magic to being a good person is to work really, really hard behind the scenes at everything you can do. And if it happens to look easy on the front end to your kids or to whoever else, then great. But you know that you want everything to look and feel effortless knowing full well you've put everything you can into it. Yeah. You know, never let, never rest on the laurels. I like that. I like that a lot. Anyways, everyone, uh, this is Commando Bond, uh, Caleb. Uh, thank you again for coming on. We'll do another episode when your book drops, at least close to it. Yeah, looking forward to that, brother. And happy Thanksgiving, anyone. Um, if you're American, anyways, Canadians, I think. Yeah. Have ha- do you guys get to have Thanksgiving up there? Yeah, you, you get to be thankful for being in America at this point, so yeah. kudos to you. Yes. Um, <laughs> They, I, I think Canadian Thanksgiving isn't quite as big of a deal, and it's on a different date, I think. Mm. I never really did Thanksgiving growing up. I, I, like, well, so I, I watched How I Met Your Mother, and they did say that a few times, but they, they just did Canada as a reoccurring gag. So, Dude, re- remember how weird how, how You Met Your Mother was? Like, I don't think that show would track these days. I, like, I, don't, no. I don't think it would make it. That's why I love it so much. It's definitely, the, as the kids would say, out of pocket. I try to stay somewhat. It's just a little bit. I mean, Neil Patrick Harris, a very openly gay man playing a womanizer, that alone is yeah. awesome. It's yeah, like womanizer. Hilarious. And then womanizer. all he does is roast roast Canada and yeah. chant USA all the time. Yes, based. Um, <laughs> like now we just get dog shit like the Big Bang Theory. Dude, I fucking hate that show. I Yeah, like, pseudo-intellectualism is exhausting. Yeah, it, it's, it's the worst. Basically, every punchline is like, ha, nerd. And like mm-hmm. it is like such a lowest common denominator, fucking. Oh, if anyone ever tells me that they like it, I, I automatically judge them. <laughs> so it's like the only people I've ever met that actually unironically like that show are just like midwet white women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Yes. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yes. If happy uh, you know anyone. 
happy happy Thanksgiving uh, with you and yours or your friends or your fucking dog. I don't I don't know. Uh, if you know anyone that likes the Big Bang Theory, tickle them. Okay, bye.